welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler, and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. We have so much to share with you guys. Advice, tips, tricks, inspirational quotes. So after the episode, please go out and go to theartistappeals.com to get your free downloadable resources. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. Today on The Artist Appeals, we're going to be talking to a glass artist, a glass blower, but that's not exactly accurate because he's not just any old glass blower. He doesn't just make pretty things. He makes things that are conceptual, pieces that make you stop and think, bottles within bottles that you kind of look at and you go, How did he do that? His work is both beautiful and conceptual and has been shown in museums and has been in private collections across the United States. His work has been in the Museum of Art and Design, in the Toledo Museum of Glass, as well as in Sofa, Chicago. So today, please allow me to introduce you to the glass artist, Mark Petrovic. So I want to ask you a little bit about how you came to be doing what you're doing now in your career and your path. What were you doing and where were you living before um, you became a glass blower? Okay. Um, and a glass worker. So, you know, I grew up in a suburb outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and I was the one of two boys from parents that had both gone to art school with the intent of becoming artists. Um, and it didn't seem like a viable career choice for me because um, neither one was was pursuing art at the time of my childhood. So I went off to a, a liberal arts university to become a veterinarian. And that was my initial goal when I left high school. I didn't have the focus or the interest to really become a veterinarian. It just seemed like a practical way of making a living. I liked animals. That pursuit didn't last very long before I realized that I wasn't going to succeed with the effort I was putting forward at that. Then I started taking art classes because that's really where my interests lied. And I, I, was, I had an innate ability to draw from an early age. I've been doing that quite a bit. And creating things was really my passion. Mm, yeah. What led you to make that change into the art world to overcome the idea that it wasn't a viable living. You mentioned earlier that your parents were both artists, but that you didn't consider it a viable career path. They were both trained as artists, I should say. Um, They both graduated from uh, um, the Cleveland Institute of Art prior to them being accredited and and giving degrees. But my father was a photography major and my mother was a painter. Mm. Um, But as I knew them as a child, my mother was my mom and my father sold insurance. So. You know, if I was going to sell insurance, it made more sense to go to business school than art school. Yeah. Was there a particular moment in time? Was there a defining event that helped you transition? Was there a fear or hurdle that you had to overcome to make this change? There are a couple of defining events, really. I mean, you know, the first being um, while I was taking art classes. At the liberal arts university, I had, I had a grad student teacher 
expressed to me uh, the importance of kind of finding a more serious program to continue studies that I had. She said I had some talent and potential, but I really needed to, you know, I, what, you can't just be a good drawer and make it in the, in the world of art. You needed to really dedicate yourself to it. Yeah. Once I made that decision, I, I attended a Clean Institute of Art, which was a five-year program at the time. And the first two years of that program were foundation years, which every student, regardless of their major, focused on a curriculum of painting, life drawing, anatomy, still life drawing, two-dimensional design, and three-dimensional design, regardless of uh, what your outcome major was going to be. Um, and then during the second year, you could also take an elective uh, in the discipline of your choice. And I happened to stumble upon glass and was completely fascinated by the objects that were just laying around the department. And then when the time came to choose my major, I had always attended art school thinking industrial design or graphic design because those were practical. And then I was mm -hmm. just loved with this material glass. It just seemed limitless and new and uh, exciting and completely impractical. <laughs> and I had a design teacher, Richard Fiorelli, who was extremely important to me. And, and he saw my dilemma and he arranged to take me around to spend a day in the life of a, a major from each department, from industrial design and also glass. Neat. Yeah, he was hugely influential. And, in, you know, he also taught me the methodology I use in making work. I don't think I was aware of it initially, but, you know, this this idea of giving yourself an assignment and then the ideation process and uh, free thinking and play and then exploratory execution and, and process development and then assessment of the work at hand, you know, the work that you did and this kind of repeat repetition, this cycle of thinking, making, executing and reevaluation. You know, that's a process I still use in my art practice today. Oh, I love hearing that summed up. That's great. Yeah, that is the working process of an artist. And you have a theme and you have to explore that theme. Can you talk a little bit about what your goal is and what you do now or what you're trying to achieve in this process? Yeah, my, I think my goal has been pretty consistent. It's, and both my wife and I, Kari Russell you know, we both have a similar goal with just creating unique and inventive, expressive, original artwork with our chosen material, which is glass. Mm. And what do you look for in a successful piece? What makes a, a piece or a design successful to you? How do you measure that? I think success to me is um, creating a body of work that I can look at and, and be proud of, you know, in, in my soul, be happy with, and then, you know, make work that I can still look at and explore and digest and even decipher years after I've made it. I feel successful when I create work that's meaningful to me, you know, that I'm willing to sacrifice aspects of my life to be able to create the work, you know. Mm -hmm. And how do you come up with your themes that you want to explore? How do you come up with that process? I started exploring becoming an expressive artist, you know, prior to the, in the advent of the internet. It was just starting. So I, you know, I was in art school from 1986 to 91. When assignments were given or we were, you know, given the chance to create something, it seemed I was at a loss at first at an early age. I didn't know what I wanted to use as a source or define myself as an artist. So I would go to the library and before the internet, we had file cabinets. We had uh, image files, they referred to them as, which was a big bank of 
tr- pull out folders filled with clippings of magazines and book and drawings and images that were all alphabetized. So, oh. you know, and I realized that I could pull out any one of those drawers and any one of those folders and, you know, pick something and it had no or more significance to me than the next folder did. So I decided I needed to find a way of personalizing it or at least investing myself in this decision making. You know, I wasn't going to just make frogs because I thought frogs were cool. You know, I needed to have more significance to it, more reasoning. Right. I grew up fishing. I loved fishing. It was escapism to me. It was exploration to me. It was, I loved the act of getting on my bike leaving everything behind and and finding a river and and wading in the water and just being lost in that hole. It was about catching fish, but it was about the whole experience. Yeah. So my passion with fish led me to kind of want to start making fish once I started making glass, you know, things with glass, this Mm -hmm. challenge myself to make the fish. But then being able to make a fish, you know, wasn't, wasn't enough for me. I needed to have a reason for making the fish. I needed to give it a context. Um, and at the time, I had been reading about the Pacific salmon going up and spawning and giving birth to the next generation, and in the process, dying and decaying, you know, decaying and dying and giving of itself for the next generation. Mm. Kind of dawned on me, even though my mother hated this, I kind of equated. So where I was in art school was where my mom had been, right? She, I was in my 20s, and I was trying to figure out who I was going to be, you know, and develop myself. And then it seemed odd that my mother had gone through the same growth and development, but then in my mind had stopped it to become my mom. And I was kind of in a parallel, you know, point in my life. And uh-huh. so I made a, a sculpture of my mother being this, you know, Pacific salmon giving them to herself. <laughs> To raise me and, and, you know, to give me the next chance at going. And um, I can see why she might not have liked it. it enjoy that metaphor now. <laughs> but what a deep thought. So all of a sudden, I'm still making fish and I'm still using glass. And my challenge on the day is still to be able to make a quality glass fish. But then with all that other psychological baggage thrown onto it, it becomes much more interesting to me. And then you start to develop. You know, and by tweaking that notion or taking it further, the body of work develops. You know, your your core ideas are the same, but uh, you all of a sudden you have a series of work that you can keep drawing from. Right. It sounds like you like water and oceanic, aquatic type of themes. Can you talk a little bit about your metaphor for? Yeah, I had, so I I do use objects symbolically. Uh, I I do make work that speaks of the human condition, but I don't want to make people. Like I don't have an interest in making the human form. I find that I can talk about the same thing using birds and fish, and you know, and it stems from that piece I made with the salmon being my mother. Yeah, I, th- I think it's more geography than just water. You know, we lived twenty some years on the coast of in Connecticut next to a, a, a big river six miles from Long Island Sound. So I spent a lot of my time fishing and boating and, and that connectedness. But I think it has to, you know, I started using fish as a metaphor for myself. And then the other components in the sculpture were the external influences on the fish. 
and that was great for a while. And then I wanted to start talking about relationships and starting a family and, and uh, marriage and those things. And the, the fish didn't quite work as well. So that's when I started mm-hmm. exploring birds. And then, you know, with a bird, you know, you certain bird species, the male is quite differently colored than the female. So, you, you know, you can have multiple females, or multiple males, and that changes the dialogue. You mm-hmm. add a nest and you're talking about home and nurturing and safety, you know, and eggs, you know, eggs again, it's, you know, it's offspring and responsibilities. And so I'm st- still sticking with it in the bird theme, but all these other things add possibilities to the dialogue. Mm, the layering. The layering, yeah. And the boats are the same thing, you know, so the boats are vessels, you know, they're us, they're the stand-in for the people and they're, you know, the environment is the chart, is the map. And there's all those other objects that I tend to use that have symbolism and meaning. And it does vary, you know, it isn't a, a strict symbolic code that I go by. Certain ideas and meanings shift depending on what they're shown with. It's kind of surrealistic in a way. Yeah. I make naturalistic forms that are recognizable. I try for anatomical correctness or at least uh, convincing anatomy. Mm -hmm. But I use the object symbolically and uh, surrealistically, you know, and their meaning changes and morphs with its combination with other objects. I love the idea of our connection to nature and that your work explores that in a visual context, but also a three-dimensional context. You talked a little bit at one point in our earlier conversation about how you don't consider yourself a glass blower. You consider yourself more of a glass artist and that this is your medium, but that you use other things as well. What would you say about product and about selling work and what would you consider one of your best-selling products with air quotes around it or pieces or designs? Like, how does that, how do you transition from the fine art, the conceptual work into the business aspect? Yeah. So they're, they're, they're very separate things. Mm-hmm. I try to keep them separate. Um, once you know, uh, you know, my wife has handled most of them, the bill paying and stuff, and it's not, well, one, I, I dislike it very much doing that aspect of our <laughs> but I think thing, most people I'll, do. I'll spend days making little tiny antique looking bottles. And at the end of a good day, I may have a couple dozen of these $3 junk store bottles, or I'll make a pile of little glass matches. And they're really crucially important to the work I make, but they're a bad business plan. You couldn't make money. And then once you start saying my time is worth X, it's really easy to not spend the time making the important things because they don't pay for themselves. So I try to spend as much time as I can focusing on the work that I want to make and being an expressive artist. And I kind of joke that my wife and I have had successful careers in spite of ourselves. (laughs) We never really think of it as a product. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we also, you know, so times are changing. It's, it's a different landscape than it was 10, 15 years ago. We relied on ignorance, really. You know, we graduated from school. And said, okay, we're going to make stuff and money will come our way. And, and that's when we became aware of collectors, you know, and it was just uh, a large group of glass collectors that liked, you know, work made with that material. They're passionate about that material. Mm-hmm. 
which was both good and bad for us. I mean, it, it gave us a source of income based on this group of people that collected as couples generally. And that was great, except, you know, we were trying to make work that was about things more than a pretty bird or a pretty fish. And that wasn't often what was championed in the galleries. Right. Oftentimes, you know, I'd hear people say that their favorite piece was this one because it's red, you know, or they like that shade of blue. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I, I get, but it wasn't, wasn't where I was spending the vast majority of my thinking time considering what color I was going to use. Mm-hmm. I think there's a thing that happens with glass often where um, you become so overwhelmed with the technical difficulties of making the pieces that you become focused on that takes over. I see it with students all the time where they have all kinds of incredible drafting skills and great ideas, and they're very expressive and, and unique with pen and paper, collage, or anything. Um, and then they start making glass cups. And I don't know if it's just you, be, you kind of fall down this rabbit hole of technical proficiency that we've mm. always tried to avoid. We want to be technically proficient. We want to create you know, high-integrity work. Right with high skill. And part of that goes towards us not, not wanting to be imitated, you know, and not mm-hmm. wanting to imitate others. You know, I used to tell my students that you really, you know, you want to be the Beatles, not the Beatles cover band, you know, <laughs> you want to be original in your thinking and in your processes. Right. And some of that comes from, you know, making work that is technically difficult or labor intensive. You know, that's, those are the kind of things that keeps other people that are in it for the buck or the quick buck to keep from imitating you. And how do you present your work? So, you know, you say you make some, you might spend a day making little bottles or little matches. Do you find that those are lower price point items that you can use to get collectors in? No, they're, they're components to larger sculptures. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, early on, I did a series of pieces called directionals, which um, started with fish, but then ended up with birds as the main character, you know, the protagonist in the play. Mm-hmm. And most of the feedback you'd get, and we live in busy lives, right? So people aren't going to spend, you know, 20 minutes, let alone hours trying to figure out the meaning on things. They respond on a visceral level immediately. That's, that's pretty fish. I like that. And they may or may not buy it based on that. Mm-hmm. The work wasn't being sold because of any genius ideas behind it. It was being sold because it contained a pretty fish. But I wanted to make something more meaningful to myself than just a pretty fish. So I had to layer all these other components into the pieces. So I wasn't making glass matches or little glass bottles as, you know, objects to entice people to see, to look at my work more deeply. Those are just components in in larger compositions. Right, right. And how do you educate your audience to the benefits of your work and the layers of meaning? How do you reach out to your audience and and build them and educate them and uh, communicate with them? I don't know if we do a great job of that. I mean, at least me personally. Um, I understand. <laughs> but, you know, and I find friends and family probably know the least about my work, just because it's it's a weird <laughs> thing to talk about. You know, it's like reading your diary to people. I always write about the work as well. Uh huh. I think the the writing feeds the work, and then the work guides the writing, and it's part of understanding what I'm trying to do. Oh yeah, um, I hate writing; like it's not something that flows for me. But 
it's a really important aspect. It's like drawing, you know, I don't do it as much as I should, but it's an important aspect. So I set up a website that was, um, you know, we set up 10, 15 years ago for not for selling the work, but just for educating people. So it had images of the work, statements about the overall series, statements about individual pieces that kind of would give you an idea of how I consider the work as I'm creating it. And it's, you know, none of the work on there is available for sale. It's not set up to generate an income. It's, gen- it's set up to educate. Mm-hmm. I think education is a key component of selling work. Educating your audience is so very vital to developing and growing them as collectors. What is the hardest part of marketing for you? I think we as artists all have difficulty marketing, sharing our our innermost thoughts, because for some of us, art is a very personal expression. So what do you find is the hardest part of marketing and, and how do you overcome it? Well, I think, you know, this is something I struggle with daily. You know, we, we talk about this a lot and it's, it's changing quite a bit. So when we ignorantly started creating work and hoping to make a living off it, uh, there were galleries that that was the only way we sold work. We didn't sell work direct. So we would make work and send it to galleries and galleries would display it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they, and it was up to them. to model. Yeah. And they would educate the buyers on the work and tell. And then, you know, over time, I realized that, oh, I sent out that body of work without, I, I never sent my statements to them, you know. Or, and so then it was like, so what are they, how are they educating people? Other than them giving a cold review, you know, a cold critique of the work and just saying, oh, yeah, like, you know, this is blue and you can see here this is tall and, you know, other, you know, they didn't have any of the backstory. So they were trying to sell the work, you know, and things have changed, you know, the advent of the internet, that's led largely to a demise in glass-focused galleries. You know, there's still, I mean, I'm generalizing here, there's still galleries out there that are being successful, but it's just shifted. You know, I use Facebook and Instagram, but you know, I'm, I'm kidding myself. If I think I'm marketing myself with that, I'm just sharing it with fellow glass artists and, you know, friends and family, you know, it's not, it's, it's, you know, and a couple images of a three dimensional piece that's layered with significance, you know, a couple images doesn't do it justice. True. And I just actually recently posted, um, some of the work from this last show with a portion of one of the artist statements that I had. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a comment from somebody was, you know, I, I like, you know, I, I have meaning behind my work too, but I find that I enjoy other people's bringing their own stories to it, you know? And, and so, you know, if you tell too much, then you get pushback from people not wanting you to explain your work to them, you know, and I do understand the work needs ah. to exist and be successful on a visual level because it is visual artwork, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, I'm not a narrator, but the concepts are important. And I think the source is important too. And I, I, I think more sharing the stories behind the work or at least some of the underlying drive, you know, those grains of sand is it's, to help expedite the process and maybe encourage further exploration. If somebody's going to dismiss a piece offhand because yeah, it's a pretty bird, but I'm not interested, 
then I, I've not enticed them to look deeper. So it's a balancing act. It is, you know, and I think that probably, uh, look, there's not enough hours in the day, right? I mean, we, we make work that's really labor intensive and lots of processes. And I would like to spend all of my time just trying to create the work and even then not have enough. Yeah. You know, and do a better job marketing, but we just, you know, we've always, you know, kind of relied on others to do the marketing. That's mm-hmm. what they get the cut for, right? Yeah. So what have you found to be the most effective way to reach out to your audience? Where have you had the best response with um, some of these new methods? It is transitioning and it's transitioning rapidly. And you mentioned you use Facebook, you use Instagram, you've done traditional galleries. Do you ever do craft fairs? Where do you find the best connection with your audience for you personally? Yeah, well, we haven't done fairs. Um, and and that, the reason is twofold. I mean, when we first got out of school, Kari and I took another artist's work to an art fair because they had double booked, which is a mm-hmm. no-no. But, so they paid us to go and try to sell their work at the fair. And people would come up and they'd be, oh, this is really nice. And they'd pick it up and they'd flip it over and they'd see a you know $40 price tag. And they'd be like, oh, and they'd put it back down. And that rejection, you know, you can see it kind of overcome their face. It's like, oh, this is really interesting. I like this. And then $40, I'm not going to pay for that. And it wasn't even my work, but that kind of immediate rejection, I didn't like, you know, I didn't want to be witness to that. Uh, so I decided, I, you know, we just didn't want to do that. And we had, you know, a lot of people we knew set up studios to make their artwork and then thought they would fund it or subsidize it by making production work to help pay for it. And mm-hmm. it, you know, making good, successful production work is a full-time job and requires a tremendous amount of effort on its own. Mm-hmm. And we always felt like we were going to focus completely on making our artwork, finding venues to show it and sell it. And that, and that was how we were going to do it. And, and as long as we could. Right. You know, the jury's still out on all that. Everything's changing. <laughs> <laughs> we're still fluctuating. I'll let you know. Maybe we'll do another podcast in five years from now. Oh, that'd be fabulous. I'd love that. I just recently read some portions, encountered a new book and read some portions. I'm reading right now this book, um, The Courage to Be Rejected. And there's there's one called The Courage to Be Disliked. And the other one is, um, I'm, I'm thinking I had the title slightly wrong, but it's essentially along the same lines, The Courage to Be Rejected. And rejection is a hard topic for anybody, not just artists. Although artists, I think, imbibe their artwork with so much of their inner dialogue that rejection can be particularly hard. Mm-hmm. And this is a fantastic book. It's a gentleman that decided to go on a 100-day rejection journey. He basically decided every single day to try and ask somebody for something. And just, you know, it could be as simple as, hey, will you take this $5 bill? <laughs> uh-huh. uh, he asked five people if they would like $5 and only two out of five took it because we are such, um, you know, uh, we, we have reservations. Well, why is he trying to give me money? So I thought that was a very interesting book and the things he learned from it were fantastic, but really overcoming rejection as an artist, I think is a difficult thing. Do you have any words of advice on how you deal with rejection 
when you submit to galleries or for shows or, you know, what, what would your advice be? I actually had the added benefit of having married another artist that was applying for similar shows and galleries and things. Um, so when we first got married, uh, Kari and I moved in uh, North Carolina and we found a house and studio that was available for rent. And we lived there. And this is back in the days, you know, pre-internet where you would get a slide sheet put together, mm. send out the slide sheet. I remember and then, those days. Yeah. I don't, I don't long for them, but <laughs> we would send out, we were applying for galleries. We were applying for shows. We were applying for grants and it all took time, right? There wasn't that instant gratification of, of checking your email. We had a long gravel road that we would walk down to get to our mailbox and we would throw the ball to the dog and, you know, we'd walk hand in hand down to the mailbox and we'd get our mail and more times than not, she got an acceptance of something and I got a rejection from the same thing, you know, and then we would walk back, separated a bit, you know, and it was, I had a lot of difficulty in maintaining excitement for her and not being wallowing in my, my own you know, rejection. Yeah. That was good for me. And then also just seeing how, you know, it was just, you know, it's almost like I had twice as much exposure to success and rejection, you know, because yeah. her successes were truly my successes as well, you know, and it still goes on today, you know, and maybe I care less, you know, I don't get that twinge of jealousy like I used to. I think, you know, I realize we're both in this, we're trying to, you know, someone had said years ago to me that, that you know, you know, the rising the waters benefits us all. You know, we're all oh. little boats on the sea, and um, and I see that. You know, being supportive of of uh, you know other successes don't diminish yours, you know, or your potential. Great advice. Yeah, you know it's hard, especially when you're you know you're showing at a show. Uh, we used to do these shows called sofa shows, which was sculptural objects, functional art. Mm. Uh, they were in Chicago and New York, and there were annual shows that we worked towards and you may have a client couple that would come through and they were really interested in your piece, but they may, they may have the money to buy one work of art at that show and they may fall in love with five or six pieces. So then, it, so then you are competing in a way with that. Mm -hmm. And I always, initially I was afraid to kind of be myself. So I, you know, I would dress up, in a suit, which wasn't me. And I would comb my hair and, and look presentable and try to be <laughs> respectful. And, and, <laughs> and uh, I was pretty boring, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I just didn't interest them. I'm, I'm not, I am, as far as artists go, I am pretty boring. You know, I don't have any tattoos to look at me. You wouldn't know that I spend my days just making stuff and melting things, but <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's who I am. And it wasn't until I started loosening up cracking jokes and talking with them and being sarcastic. I have a really dry sense of humor that, um, you know, and you tend to say things a little that you shouldn't at times, you know, and push it a little far, you we know, developing do. a comedy routine. But that worked for me better because I found too that a lot of those people that are buying the work are, they, they're investing quite a bit in the work and they, they want to, um, collect personalities as much as they do the work, you know, it, it's part of their backstory. So that, you know, when they tell people about this piece they acquired or whatever, they talk about the artists and their relationship with the artists, you know? Yes. Yes. I think people buy work and want to buy stories. They want to buy a memory and they want to, yeah. Yeah. 
I think you have to be honest with, you know, who you are and what what you're making. I mean, I think that's why I really try to, you know, why I don't just, you know, let you call me a glassblower. It's not, I don't have anything against glassblowing and I loved being a glassblower, but I know I've sacrificed so much to be an, ex, you know, expressive artist and make these pieces that I love glass and I love the material and I, it's infinitely the possibilities are endless and it's always teaching me something new and I'm always seeing something technically that I've never imagined possible. Mm. And I love that aspect of it. But my goal is to make this work that's much more involved than the physical aspect of just going and blowing glass. Yeah. So what what is your preferred title? Oh, gosh. I don't know. <laughs> as long as it's polite, I really don't care. <laughs> you know, I, you know. Because I also, so I've, I've struggled with this a lot. You know, I've, I don't know if. Labels are interesting things. We let them define us. And sometimes when you lose them or change them, it changes everything. It does. And I think some of it though comes with our preconceived notions of what things are. Like I don't, I don't really feel like I can call myself an artist, even though I feel I'm, I'm kind of living in this in-between Really? Land. You know, I choose to work with materials that are traditional craft materials. You know, I was a metals miner. I love, you know, I'm a lousy jeweler, but I have the abilities of using metal and woodworking processes in my work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't refer to myself as a glassblower because I know it's, it's much more involved. I live in this kind of in-between kind of thing. You know, I make conceptual work, but it's also not, you know, I have no interest in making political work or, or work that shocks people or um, the craftsmanship involved. There's, I like a high level of craftsmanship. I kind of think that if I'm going to invite people to look at things, the cleaner I make things or the nicer I make things without sucking the soul out of it, the, the more I have kind of invited someone to, to continue to look. You know, there's a danger of overcrafting things and taking, you know, taking all the soul out of it. But, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the maker that I am, but then also the idea generator. And, and so I, I'm not sure if I can label myself. I don't want to cut the glass label off me completely because that's such an important part of, of what I do as well. Right, right. You know, it's funny to hear you say that, you know, you have trouble labeling yourself or picking a title. How long have you been doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'll I'll figure that out at some point as well. (laughs) That's great, because I think a lot of artists struggle with that. So it's really good advice. Maybe don't pigeonhole yourself. Um, You've got to, you got to explore and develop and grow and layer. So um, do you ever use any contracts? Do you ever um, use any paperwork? Do you have any advice for listeners on contractual terms or things that you found essential? We, we occasionally there's contracts, but you know, we're real mom and pop operation. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've always kind of the glass community is a very small community. So when I work within the glass community, it's almost always through reference and word of mouth and a handshake and trust. And it's not a great way of doing business, but that's how we've kind of always done it. Um, I found that contracts generally favor those that are giving it to you. And they're not really binding them. It's a bizarre business to be in. You know, you're making the inventory for someone to show and splitting the proceeds with them, but you don't get paid until something sells. 
Uh, I do know that when you do shows, like it's, it's extremely important to make sure who's responsible for insuring, you know, mm-hmm. I had a student that prior to her graduating show participated in a show in a college, a a different college's art gallery, and the gallery burned down, you know, which is a freak accident. But she lost several pieces that she was really counting on for her graduating show. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, you know, how how often do those things happen? You don't know. But you really want to make sure that, you know, once once it leaves your hands, who's responsible for it? Right. Definitely. So... Tell me, Mark, what does success look like for you? What do you feel has been your biggest accomplishment, your, your, your most prestigious show, or what have you been most proud of? Well, you know, over the years, we've had lots of museum acquisitions, and it's always really exciting Yeah. at the moment. But it's, I think success for me is, is the career, right? It's the creating a body of work, you know, that I can look at and be proud of. Yes, yes. The success is in the work. Yeah, it's creating work that's meaningful. You know that that you still, you know, you still are drawn to and, and are proud of. You know, and you know it in your soul. You know, you know it in your gut when, when you're kind of mailing it in and you need to kind of buckle down and and, and dive deeper. Right. You know. I want to back up just a smidgen and talk just for a minute about your museum acquisitions and how that process works. How do you get your work into a museum? I think it's almost all come through galleries, you know, gallery sales. Certain galleries have relationships with different museums and they mm. respond to a body of work. Um, you know, for a while I was, my wife got a piece purchased by the Corning Museum of Glass really early on. Wow. That's and I great. was always, yeah, I was always uh, a little jealous of that. Like I really wanted a piece in the Corning Museum. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. Well, and I know at one point I had a body of work that I still really love, but it, it I had a show in New York with it, and the curator from that museum came and looked at the show, and I told the galleries like, "Look, whatever, you know, whatever I got to do from my end to get them to take one of these pieces, you know, I'm willing to, to you know to sacrifice money in an effort to get a piece in the museum." And and I remember the curator came through and told the gallery owner that, "Yeah, you know, it's it." We really we like what he's doing, but we don't think he's quite there yet. You know, I remember that was kind of Ooh. crushing in a way. But you know, eventually they did they did purchase a piece for me, and it, it it it's nice. But like I said, it's not it's not it's not the end of all everything. It's, it's not you know um, can't be the end goal. I don't know. Yeah, it's not. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe because the Louvre hasn't called yet. That, <laughs> that's the end goal. I don't know. They all build. Um, the validation and um, it helps people, you know, it's like the trust thing, right? So if you're a collector out there buying things, if you don't have any, you know, if you do have museums on your resume, it helps them rest assured that, you know, maybe they're not being tricked, you know, that there is some quality in the work and others have trusted in it. And that it's an investment. It, it is. Yeah. Have you found that many of your collectors are interested in work as a investment? Uh, some are, um, I think you really got to buy the work because you love it. And we're on this earth for a finite amount of time and you want to spend your days living with things like that Mm -hmm. as an investment. I mean, who's to say what's, 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, my prices have gone up. So if I was to remake a piece that's damaged or give the insurance value on an older piece, I kind of look at it like what it would cost me to make it nowadays. And my expenses have gone up dramatically. So purchasing the same type of piece from 10 years ago to now, it would cost you a lot more now. But I don't know if the value, you know, and then we're dealing with a secondary market, right? So what, Mm -hmm. you know, what insurance value is and what you can actually get for something's that that changes too. You see it all the time. And there's a lot of secondary market activity happening now with contemporary glass. So the glass movement started, you know, 54 years ago, something like that Mm. in the United States where people started taking the material and making individual expressive artwork with it, where an artisan would work with it from beginning to end. You know, before that it was worked in factories where that rarely happened. You know, you had you worked on one aspect of it, but not the whole thing. Interesting. I didn't realize uh, it was such a young field. Yeah, from an art form. I mean, it's been used in other countries thousands of years of and for, you know, for individual things. But in the States, you know, the glass industry was largely factories, you know, window glass and, and tableware and that sort of thing. Oh. Um, it was just a different thing. And then it wasn't until, you know, Harvey Littleton started training people, you know, and ceramicists got into it, you know, training people to use it as a material and explore it as a material for mm. expression. You know? Yeah. I use that word expression a lot, but it's it's a big part of it, you know, telling our story. It is. The story is everything. Can you talk just a little bit about pricing? You talked about how your prices have gone up due to materials and inflation and so forth and so on, but how do you look at pricing work? Yeah, pricing is always a difficult thing. I mean, I'll, I'll spend an hour talking to somebody at a show that really loves the work. I found out early on that those are the people that generally couldn't afford it. And you couldn't afford it, sell it cheap enough that they could buy it. You know, pricing is based, well, a lot of it's based on the market, but it's it, it's kind of a weird thing. You know, we don't get paid by labor and materials, because if we did, we would be making next to nothing. At one point, my wife and I were trying to figure it out when we were first getting started. And she came down at one, and she hadn't calculated every factor into it, but I think she was down to like $4 an hour. And it was, yeah. So that's the kind of thing that makes you want to stop making the work. It's peaks and valleys, you know, it's a roller coaster. So we'll go months. Uh, There was one year we went six or seven months without selling anything. Mm, You have to plan ahead for that. You have to plan ahead. You have to really be fiscally conservative. You know, we have to, um, you know, whenever you do have sales, you you save it. You don't go on a spending spree. Right. So the galleries helped with the sales initially, you know, largely because they were representing work that was, you know, expensive and your work would kind of fit in. People would say, career-wise, how long have you been doing the work, your notoriety, that sort of thing. And the value would sort of be based on that. You know, some of it's, some of it is you got, you got to cover your expenses. Of course. Very important. And then it's incumbent on you to try to minimize those in order to be able to, to make a profit. And things are shifting. It's getting harder and harder. Now, the, the glass market we deal with, there's collector's discounts that go to everything. And people started tacking on ex- cost to the work at shows to cover you know, at sofa shows, there's lighting, right? Every light costs the gallery $100 or $80, something like huh. that. So if you're showing, you know, 14 pieces, you got $1,000, you 
already just in the lights, plus the $10,000, $20,000 for the space that you're showing in, you as an individual artist. So they're tacking on some of the infrastructure costs to passing on the infrastructure costs to the artist now. Yeah, that's, well, you know, originally it was a 50-50 system. Right. You know, and, and that was fine. But then they started, you know, collectors started demanding a discount. And then the galleries found that if they didn't extend discounts, they weren't going to get the sales. They would go to another gallery to buy the piece. Hmm. They would lose out. So there's been some inflation of the value of the work or the pricing of the work just based on the market. Right. But, um, you know, anytime I get price resistance from a collector, you know, I just like to point out that we could trade keys to our lives anytime they wanted. You know, it's like, I tell you what, you drive my car home tonight and I'll drive your car home and we'll go to each other's homes and, and see who's who's charging too much. You know, I I have two cars that are 13 years old, you know, and, and of course, of course, you know, we're, you know, we've been, we've, we've been successful, you know, and, and finances, you know, money has always been an issue with us. It's always been our biggest concern and this overwhelming pressure to be able to pay our bills, you know, and, and continue doing what we do and not have to go get quote unquote real jobs, you know? Yeah. I think that's a but hot topic with all artists. It is. It, you know, it's a legitimate concern and it really isn't until you look at things in hindsight. I wish I had stressed it a little less all these years, you know, and worried a little less. Yeah. I mean, it's not realistic to do that, but you know, we own our home, own home and we've, we're working on getting our second child out of college and that's all been paid for through the sale of our work. Hey, know? that's incredible. And that sounds like success to me. You know, I've learned recently um, some top-down pricing methods. So I talk a little bit sometimes about pricing from the bottom up where you look at your materials and your time and then you put a price on a product or a piece. But recently I've learned of some top-down pricing methods where you start with the price that you want or need in order to support your life and the work and the materials and, and you start with the profit margin kind of in mind. Yeah. Have you ever looked at that? Um, how do I say it? Well, we do to an extent and we kind of largely look at the year. Did we pay our bills over the year or if we have we you know accrued any debt? And we've only had you know in the beginning, the first few years we you know, I didn't pay anything in Social Security, which is an indicator. Mm -hmm. It took me half a decade to start. So now you look at the year as a total and kind of... That's kind of our thing because we don't we don't make the same thing 12 months a year. And, you know, our, our activity of being really productive from a physical standpoint and having objects finished, that revolves around show commitments, which are scattered throughout the year. Because we don't make the same thing, we're not making the same product, it's really hard to gauge on a daily basis, what is, and that gets back to the matches, right? Yeah. Can I charge enough to make these matches pay off? Well, not in the sense of a handful of matches, but if they're used to make a piece better and that's enough to get someone to want to own it, then it, it does have a value, mm -hmm. you know? You know, the pricing is always a struggle. It wasn't until I started body work in like 2012 when I had a conversation with a gallery that was going to show it that I needed, I needed to stop getting paid labor and materials. Like we needed to start getting rewarded for this long career that we've been working on. And yes, you know, marginally successful artists, but this is all we do. And it's, it's 
uh, you know, we needed to kind of up the prices. And I've always been afraid of that. And we've had certain bodies of work. I had a gallery in Nantucket that did quite well with my boat pieces over the years. You know, it makes yeah. sense. You know, notable work in Nantucket. Regional association. Regional, yeah. And, you know, it fit the taste of the area. And there was, you know, often kind of this kind of thinking that, well, we should, you know, it's selling so well, let's increase the prices. But you know, we were making enough to kind of keep going. And I think I was naive to think it would just kind of continue forever. Right. And that would work. And I was afraid of outpricing for the market. Mm. The problem that we're having now is mid-career artists is, you know, when the market was going great in the 90s and prices got raised and things, you know, kept moving. And then, you know, 2008, everything hits the fan and, and um, a lot of the buying slows. Mm-hmm. But your price points are set. You can't lower your prices on the same type of no, work. No, you can't. Because so, you devalue your own work. So then you're stuck with, you know, you're not an early career artist anymore. You know? Right. You either have to come up with a completely different body of work that you can start off at a lower price point or diversify. You know, we've done this is a couple of years ago, we started doing taking. So I did these pieces that were called uh, avians, which are. I guess, in a nutshell, they're the deconstruction of a bird. Mm-hmm. So I, I took a dimensional bird and mentally deconstructed it into a flat sheet, knowing that if I could color and lay out a pattern in a flat sheet, I could then go uh, heat it up, roll it up, fold it up, uh, close the end down, and create a glass bubble from that glass sheet. I would have all the coloration where it needed to be. Ooh, and it, kind of it like referred to origami and glass. Yeah, similar. Yeah, it's it's got it's got some uh link lineage to that. But it was and it was again, it was still about maps and DNA and cartography and our personal kind of that that's the being, right? So I did these pieces with the bird. I may I would make two tablets. So one would become the dimensional bird and the other would stay as the tablet, and I would juxtapose the two with each other and you would see that you know as you looked at it you could start in your own mind say oh okay i see where this part of the tablet becomes that part of the bird and you can kind of deconstruct it cool so to me it was kind of this self-reflection body of work but but in the process so you make you take sheet glass that's 40 by 20 inches or so and you cut it into strips and you stack those strips up into bricks pick those bricks up hot and you stretch them into 12-foot lengths of rod that they call cane. Ooh. And they chop the cane up into little three-eighths-inch lengths of glass that are called marini, uh-huh. and you stand them on end. And all those little marini tiles, you create a mosaic with those, and you melt those in a kiln and fuse them into a big tablet. Neat. But And that's just to make – and you do two of those to make a bird and its matching tablet. But in that process, you have a, an exorbitant amount of extra marini. At some point, my wife started taking all my extra marini and making compositions with them and fusing them. And then we started making jewelry. With oh, them. great. And so we started a, a, a line of jewelry called Birds in the Hand Jewelry, which has its source at in my birds. I love that use of, I want to say scrap, although it's not really scrap, but that repurposing yeah, of recycling. Yeah, it's, it's surplus, yeah. I guess, in a way. Brilliant. But we also had the freedom of making these compositions, breaking all the rules that I self-imposed to make the tablets. My tablets had to become birds in the end, right? right? So I knew certain certain compositions had to, you know, compositional 
elements needed to remain if it was to become a bird that made any sense in the end. And she didn't have those. So she would put Marini's all sorts of ways that were rule breakers, you know, and it was, and come up with some pretty interesting things. And that actually would then end up feeding, feed me in advancing some of the patterning I was doing because it would open up some possibilities. What a wonderful collaboration, really feeding off of each other and your work informing the developments. It's been a lot of fun and it's been an interesting way of, of taking this, what, it's not really waste, but it's just this accumulation of extra parts and making it into something practical. Yeah. And functional, and it's and that that has kind of started a, a side business for us, which is where we've started thinking a little bit more about, you know, product, you know, ideology, you know, marketing and um, production line assembly, and and trying to expedite processes. And right, I, th- you know, we never think of our artwork that way. No, but I think having a lower introductory price point product that can draw a collector in, that they can give as a gift to a friend, that can uh, develop a collector, do you know what I mean, is really yeah. important to artists sometimes. Yeah, I know. And it actually would have been really wise had I done this five years ago when I was really active in that body of work. You know, I've kind of moved away from that body of work. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, it's it's still there, and that actually that body of work was probably my most successful as far as museum acquisitions go. Mm, neat. So, kind of closing up here, I have one last question for you. Uh, what are you most proud of, and you know, what is some advice that? Well, let's start with what are you most proud of, um, and go from there. Maybe I have two questions at the end here. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I guess I would say I'm, I'm most proud of the fact that looking back on my 28 years of, of being a maker, you know, with my wife, we're able to raise our kids and send them to college and and create a living out of our creativity. So it turns out in the end, art was a viable career, huh? It was, yeah. I would have argued against it all these years, but uh, yeah, you know, we were able to make the work that came from our hearts, you know, and have it be received and supported enough that we were able to make a living doing it. That's wonderful. And my last question, is there any books or resources that you just love? It doesn't have to be related to art or glass even, but are there any books you'd like to share with the audience? Anything you recommend? There's, there's two, they do have to do with art. The first one's art and fear. Mm, Great title. Um, And it's two two authors. uh, And it's been so long since, I've referenced them that I don't I don't know the names of the authors. That's all right. I'll find them and put them in the notes. Yeah, and Art and Fear was I read that right when I got out of school, and it 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 speaks of all these things that you deal with, all these reasons why the world, all the difficulties the world imposes upon you to keep you from having a career, being a creative person. Mm, yeah, and a lot of them are self imposed barriers. Right. Um, the other book that I read maybe five or six years ago, was largely uh, Rhode Island School of Design-based storyline, but it's um, The Art of Critical Making. The Art of Critical Making. I think what that did for me is it's um, all these things that I had believed and had been taught in school that had just kind of become part of who I was and my mental processes. 
the, the book kind of spelled them out and made it. It's like, oh yeah, that I, yeah, I believe that, or I follow that, you know, and that's, that's the methodology I use. And it's, it's all about making. And there's a lot of uh, really nice um, diagrams that kind of point out this whole circle of thinking, making, assessing that revolve around idea. It just spelled it out in a way that was very clear to me. Neat. You know, things I had been thinking about and believed in, but I couldn't express it. Verbally. Right. So it's a great book about process. Great book about process and multiple processes and the different ways that people approach it. And it was just, it was good for me. It clarified things for me. Fabulous. That sounds great. I'm going to have to look those two up. I like to make work that revolves around an idea or a group of ideas, you know, and the ideas form around a nucleus and and the piece grows from there. And I liken it to a, a grain of sand and an oyster in a way that the you know, oyster takes on that grain of sand and it, it can't expel it, it can't get rid of it, it can't forget about it. And it just kind of grates and aggravates that oyster to the point where it gets consumed with it mm. and it builds up these layers of protective pearl around it. And you know, the grain is always there at the core, like the ideas are always there at, at the end of a piece. Right, but they have layers on layers on top of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to make pearls, you know, this buildup of layers that, that all surround this nucleus, this core idea. But hopefully you end up with something that's beautiful and unrecognizable about, you know, it's, it's unrecognizable as the original grain of sand. You know, it's its own thing. It's a new thing. You know, it's, it's dependent and reliant on that grain of sand, but it's a new pearl. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that metaphor. It's it's very beautiful. And I think it fits really well with glass too, because in glass you're practicing layering, right? Yeah, it's very, you know, with, with glass you start at the core and as you want more and more glass, you just keep layering and layering on top. Yeah. And you had another metaphor you wanted to share with us. Yeah, so I have a metaphor. So, um, I find a lot of young artists want, they sit around waiting for that light bulb to go off for that great idea to strike mm -hmm. them. And they think inspiration comes in this bolt of lightning, you know, that cartoon image of the light bulb. And I, I've come to realize that you really have to build your own light bulb from scratch. Yeah. You know? and, I, and so I have this little drawing that I did that's, um, you know, I guess could be verbalized as, you know, the better ideas coming from, taking an average idea and developing it. You know, you, you create the light bulb. You, you have a filament at the core, you know, that grain of sand, and you surround it with that protective layer of glass mm -hmm. and the metal base, and then you have to give it energy. And then that energy has to be countered by resistance. And through your pushing your energy through that resistance, you end up creating light. Mm, and you create heat, too. You do create heat, yeah. Yeah. Especially if you have a lot of resistance. But you create a glow and it changes the world. Lights change the world. Do you feel art can change the world too? I, I think it can. I mean, I think, I think we are, as much as I would cringe at this idea when I was younger, you know, we create culture. Art creates culture and it's really necessary. Yes, yes, yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again. This has been... A pleasure. I think we've had some wonderful, deep thoughts to share with people, and I hope they really enjoy it. Yeah, I hope so, too. 
Are you a teacher or a homeschooler or a crafter? Perhaps you have kids that you like to share your love of nature with and explore the outdoors and have adventures with. Perhaps you like to go out and find bugs and frogs and turtles and snakes and birds' nests. Now you can bring that adventure inside and extend your adventure with your kids or your crafts with a craft project. Check out iConnect Crafts. That's E-Y-E, as in an eyeball, connectcrafts.com, where you can find over 70 different animals, all designed by yours truly, called the Totem Poppets. The Totem Poppets are fun, movable animals. You can paint them, you can stamp them, you can zentangle them. They can take anything you can throw at them, from crayons to watercolors. They're movable. Everyone has joints. You put them together with mini brads. We have six different colors of mini brads. You can choose blues, purples, greens, gold, silvers, whites, whatever you like, and you assemble them and then you can play with them. Stick them on a chopstick, make a play, put them in an art journal, a scrapbook, a greeting card, use them in a project for school. So check them out at iConnectCrafts.com. Well, that's it for the Artist Appeals. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal, and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something, too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com. That's the artist. Appeals, A-P-P-E-A-L-S dot com. Thanks and have a good one.